Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're holding in the middle of page 411, middle of chapter 31. So he's saying that not only is there nothing wrong with a feeling of depression that may develop if a person dwells and focuses on the fact that we are not as great as we think we are as wonderful as we think we are when we deflate our our balloon so to speak and and we puncture our narcissism and and sense of superiority and false sense of grandiosity um, on the contrary it's actually something beneficial because you're fighting fire with fire and it's not really depression, it's bitterness. And bitterness has a life to it. There's an energy, there's a life, there's a vitality. And that energy is healthy, that energy is, is good. But if you see you're, you're feeling blue anyway, you're feeling a little sad anyway, depressed anyway. So that's a good time to, you're in the mood. So get into this uh, self-assessment and self-awareness and um, soul-searching and and realizing, being truly, honestly self-aware, and realizing where you're really at in life, and how dismal your spiritual situation is and your spiritual level is, and get real, and wake up, this will lead to a tremendous joy. The consequence, this will follow, or will follow is a tremendous, tremendous joy. More so than, than, than if we were not to go through this process of bitterness and how will this lead to a tremendous joy? That's where we left us. He, he will then arrive at a true joy, middle of 411. He will then arrive at a true joy as follows. In order to comfort his heart in double measure, let him, in the wake of the above words of truth concerning his lowly spiritual stature, tell himself the following. The comfort is dual. Not only is his depression eliminated, but he will also attain a joy which he would never experience were it not for his earlier depression. So he's taking advantage of his blues. Not only will he help himself get rid of his downer or his blues or his sense of sadness, on the contrary, not only will he remove that sense of sadness, he will actually replace it with a tremendous sense of joy. Why are you so joyful when you discover that you're really the low life and the bum and the scum of the earth is really superior to you. What, what, why will that bring you joy? What kind of joy can that bring to your heart? Continue. Let him say to his heart, Indeed, without a doubt, I am far removed, utterly remote from God, and am despicable, contemptible, and so on. But all this is true only of me, that is, my body and the animating soul within it. Yet within me there is a veritable part of God, which is present even in the most worthless of my fellows, so that even if I am no better than he, I still have this part of God within me, 
namely the divine soul and the spark of godliness itself clothed in it, animating it. It is only that, when the body and animating soul are in such a lowly state, the divine soul is in exile within them. So we can't touch that divine spark that we have within us. We don't have the freedom of choice to harm, diminish, uh, um, in any way affect the divine core and essence, the divine spark that we have within us. Just like we can't touch God, we can't touch that part within us. There are no human fingerprints in it. We did not acquire it. God gave it to us. He chose us. He gave it to us. We're born with it. It's innate. It's inherent. And we don't, we can't touch that place. At the best, it goes into exile. It cannot express itself. It's trapped. But the divine spark remains intact, remains whole. Remains perfect. And holy. And every single Jew has it equally. So no matter where I am at, there, there is that divine spark. And that spark is there. Okay, if so. If so, then on the contrary, the further I am removed from God and the more despicable and contemptible, the deeper in exile is my divine soul and all the more is it to be pitied. Therefore, I will make it my entire aim and desire to extricate it from this exile and to return her to her father's house i.e. to restore it to its source and its original state as in her youth, i.e. as it was before being clothed in my body when it was completely absorbed in God's light and united with Him. Now, too, will it likewise be absorbed and united with Him once again when I concentrate all my aspirations on the Torah and the mitzvot in an effort to clothe therein all of the soul's ten faculties i.e. by applying my mental faculties to Torah study and my emotive faculties to the performance of the mitzvot with the vitality lent them by the love and fear of God, as explained above in chapter 4. Thus will my divine soul be reunited with God. Especially in fulfilling the mitzvah of prayer will I try to release my divine soul by crying out to God because of the distress of its exile in my loathsome body, so that he release it from captivity and bind it to himself. So on the contrary, the more you understand how loathsome you are, the more you understand how despicable you are, and how disgusting and how repulsive, and the more you get disgusted and repulsed by your status quo, by your behavior, and your, the way you're carrying on, and where you're at in life, and how miserable. And the more you understand it, the more you'll appreciate how deep the exile is. What a rachmanus it is in your soul, your poor soul. The soul is perfect. The soul is godly. The soul is whole. And look at the soul. The soul, Nebuch, is trapped. Trapped in your body. The soul is suffering. Imagine the existential angst of your soul. Your soul is suffering. Your soul is in pure agony, is in pain. So therefore, the, the greatest kindness that I can do for my soul is to release my soul. Release it, of its, uh, relieve it of its suffering. How do you relieve the soul of its suffering? By returning the soul, maybe just for a few moments. 
returning the soul back to the palace. Imagine the prince, the royal prince, is taken into captivity and placed in the concentration camp. Because every time we tell a lie and every time we do something wrong, we sin, we misbehave, the soul never gets used to it. The equivalent of taking the arm of a child, a perfectly healthy child, and putting it into fire. Imagine the excruciating pain. You never get used to it. It's not like, well, I've been lying for 50 years. Oh, I've got used to it already. What's the big deal? I don't care anymore. I don't feel guilty anymore. The soul never gets used to it. Every time we do something wrong, we misbehave. The soul is an agony. It's, a concentr- it's worse than a concentration camp for the soul. It's a spiritual concentration camp. We we mercilessly torture the soul to death. So imagine the great kindness that we can do for the soul if we can relieve the soul of its suffering just for a few moments. A few moments a day. Have rahmanas on your soul. The few moments of the day that you're studying Torah, for those moments your soul are in heaven. Your soul is in heaven. You're studying Torah, you're, you're with, the soul is together with the divine. It forgets all its pain, it forgets all its anguish. You brought it back to heaven. The moment you're doing a mitzvah, the soul is in heaven. You did an act of kindness, something divine. You gave a penny to tzedakah. You used your hand to give a penny to tzedakah. To help someone, the soul is in the seventh heaven. So you can imagine the joy you would feel. Imagine. You walk into shul. You see people sitting in shul with rags, shmatas. What's your initial reaction? You'll be disgusted, repulsed. What kind of, what kind of, why are they coming to shul this way? You should be embarrassed in themselves, ashamed of this is how you come to synagogue. But what if you knew that these people sitting in rags were actually concentration camp inmates? And somehow you managed to convince Hitler to give them a reprieve one hour a day you can take them out but they can't dress they can't they can only leave as they are in their shmatas in their rags and you bring them to shul imagine if you saw them and you realized who they are it would move you to tears you would hug and kiss them you would be so excited you would be so thrilled you would be so thankful and grateful well that's the way we are spiritually we walk into shul we're learning we're praying we're doing mitzvah. And yet we're, and yet we're like concentration camp inmates, spiritually speaking. Walking around in tatters and rags, torturing our poor souls. <laughs> day, day and night. But how can I be joyful? How can I come to synagogue and pray joyfully? Look who I am. I'm a despicable human being, a lowlife, a miserable creature. And here I am, I'm praying to God. And here I am, I'm studying Torah. And here I am, I'm doing a mitzvah. I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I should be under the table. How can I even show my face? On the contrary, you're 100% right. Miserable, low life, all of the above. But for that very reason, you should be joyful. The more you understand how miserable you are, the more you understand what a Rahman is, what a pity it is on your soul. Your soul is tortured. Mercilessly, you're tortured in your soul day and night. So imagine the, the, the kindness that you can do. Is there a greater joy when you can reprieve your soul for one hour a day, for a few moments a day, you give your soul a little reprieve from the furnace, from the crematorium, spiritual crematorium? 
the soul can study a little Torah, could do something divine, could do a mitzvah, could do something divine, could pray and talk to God, talk, do something divine. Go back to heaven. The prince can go back to the palace just for one hour a day. Don't look at the external. Yes, he's dressed in Shemat. But look, it's the prince. And you've given him a reprieve. You've released him. Is there a greater joy? Genuine joy. That should fill your heart with joy and gratitude. And therefore the mitzvot that you do, you do it with such enthusiasm, you do it with such excitement, with such fervor, with such passion, with such joy. What, what a privilege that we have. The opportunity that Hashem gave us. And with this he explains, continue. This service of God, in which one seeks to restore the soul to its source, is referred to as teshuva with good deeds. The Talmud uses this expression very often. But if you think about it, it really makes no sense, right? It says teshuva means repentance and good deeds. Which comes first? First, it should have said good deeds. And if a person fails and doesn't do good deeds, then he can amend them. He has to fix, he has to make amends. You don't do teshuva and then do good deeds. Teshuva is what you mend. First, you have to do the good deeds. These are your responsibilities, your obligations. If you don't live up to it, then you have a chance to fix it, to make up for it. He starts out with teshuva and then he ends with good deeds. So the answer is, and that's what he's going to explain, continue. This is an oft-used Talmudic expression denoting the mitzvot, as in the statement, one hour of teshuva with good deeds in this world is better than all the life of the world to come. At first glance, the juxtaposition of the two seems incongruous. Teshuva deals with atoning for one's past imperfections, while good deeds are performed in the present and would seem to bear no relation to one's past. According to the Alter Rebbe's statement, however, that one's performance of the mitzvot should be motivated by a desire to return his soul to its source within God, the connection between the two is clear. The good deeds themselves actually constitute teshuva, which means return. As the Alter Rebbe continues, this denotes the good deeds which one does with the intention of returning the soul which is part of God to the divine source and root of all the worlds. So we're talking about teshuva. This is a, a theme in life. This is a purpose in life. It's not just teshuva to make amends. We're talking about teshuva, which motivates one to, to do the mitzvot. Because teshuva means return. You want to reconnect the soul, return it back to its home. You want the soul to feel at home. So you return the prince back, the royal prince back to his palace. And that's what motivates you to study Torah and do mitzvah. So it's the tshuva that leads you to the, to the maizim taifim, to the good deed. Tshuva of maizim taifim. Because you're doing the soul the greatest favor. You're helping the soul. You're doing the soul the greatest kindness. And the soul comes alive. Because the soul is so sensitive. Even if we are numb, even if we don't feel anything, the soul is extremely sensitive. The soul feels everything and registers everything. And and, uh, the soul is suffering. We don't suffer. Because the more abominable we are, the more arrogant we are, the more self-absorbed and self-centered, the less sensitive we are. We don't sense our lowliness. 
It's only when a person starts reflecting and meditating and everything he discussed in the previous two chapters, chapters 29 and 30, when you really assess yourself honestly and you really do some real soul-searching and you really start realizing and it hits home. I am despicable and I am disgusting and look how low I am, look how far I am from the truth and how distorted my whole sense of self is and my picture of myself. And, and uh, when you start feeling and being sensitive, yes, initially it leads to a tremendous feeling of bitterness. But this bitterness is immediately replaced with an intense sense of joy because I can do something about it. I can rescue, I can redeem, I can, I can re- give a reprieve to my soul. My soul is suffering and I can do something about the suffering. How? The slightest good deed that I do, any mitzvah that I do, any Torah study that I do, any act of kindness, any act of goodness and kindness, is such a reprieve, such a relief for the soul. It's so soothing to the soul. It's so therapeutic. It's so, it feels so good to the soul. It's, it's indescribable. And the more you realize how abominable you are. And if we don't realize, our soul realizes. <laughs> you can imagine the, how much the soul appreciates the opportunity to reconnect, to do teshuva, to return, to reconnect with Hashem. So this is the, the intense joy and motivation that leads a person to do the mitzvah. And to do the mitzvah with enthusiasm, with excitement. This, then, should be one's lifelong aim in the service of God with great joy, the joy of the soul upon leaving the loathsome body and returning during one's study of the Torah and service of God through prayer to her father's house as in her youth, i.e., to the unity with God that it enjoyed before it descended into the body. This corresponds to the statement of our sages that one ought to engage in tshuva throughout his life. It really makes no sense. If the shuva is to make amends, to repent for something we've done wrong, so why should a person be all his life do to shuva? <laughs> or maybe don't do anything wrong. You won't have a reason to do shuva. All your life you do shuva. I mean, even after you do shuva, it's not enough. You can never make amends. That's a very depressing thought. If even after you do shuva, you always have to do shuva. No, he says, no, he doesn't mean doing truva make amends. He means truva as a way of life. Because you realize that for the soul, life in this world, as it is existential angst, just for the soul being in this world, the act of birth is a very traumatic experience for the soul. Then when we add insult to injury, in addition to this traumatic descent, this roller coaster ride that the soul took, and it left heaven, its heavenly perch, its heavenly abode, and journeyed into the body, into the physical body, egotistical world, materialistic world. We add insult to injury, and then we add to its trauma by doing something wrong, by saying a lie or doing something wrong. Um, that's, that, that's just adding insult to injury. But as it is, for the soul, the soul no longer has the same connection the way it had before it was born. When the soul was in heaven, the soul was united with God. It was conscious of God. Felt the divine, experienced the divine. And then the soul comes into this body and is trapped in the body, in the material, physical body. So for the soul, this is a very traumatic experience. Each and every moment, 
of existence, each and every moment that we exist in this world, for the soul is a traumatic experience. And therefore, this would be the theme of our life. The theme of our life is to help the soul relieve itself of, of its existential angst. And that's why the Talmud says that all your life should be teshuva. All your life, the theme and the motivation behind your life, everything you do in life should be to help the soul return. To help the soul reconnect. That's why we find the theme of Rosh Hashanah. The theme of Rosh Hashanah is teshuva. Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate the creation of the world, the creation of man. Man was first created. Why do you have to do teshuva? You were just created. You're brand new. You have a clean slate. What do you have have to do teshuva? Man was created, and the first thing he has to do is is teshuva. The first order of the day is do teshuva. What do you mean do teshuva? I was just created. I was just born. Why do you have to teshuva? But this is the, the journey of the soul into this world. Birth for the soul is a very traumatic experience. You know, in heaven, there is no dichotomy, there is no split between potential and actual. All your potential is actualized. That's why it's heaven. And when the soul is born to the body, now suddenly there's a grand canyon between our potential and our actual. That's the tragedy of the human condition. The Talmud says that one out of a thousand students enter into the Beis HaMedrash and fully realize their potential. 999 will enter into the study hall and they will not realize their potential, full potential. One out of a thousand will realize its full potential. What a tragedy. God gives us so much potential. This world is so ripe with potential. And most of us barely scratch the surface. We barely tap into the energy that God has given us. We haven't even skimmed the surface. And this is the, this is the only reason why, a, why would an adult choose go into education to hang around all day with children especially with each passing year they, they're getting younger and he's getting older <laughs> why wouldn't he hang around with his own peers his own age group which adult would give up his own age group and would spend all his life hanging around kids but the educator is the one who sees the promise in the eyes of the child Maybe this child will be the one in a thousand who will realize their potential. It's every parent's hope and dream that this child will be that child that will realize the potential. But the tragedy of the human condition is that most overwhelming majority, 999, don't. So there's a huge split, a huge dichotomy, a grand canyon between our potential and our action. It's a yawning gap. And the soul is in anguish. The soul can't make peace with it. You have this energy inside of you that God gave you. And if you don't utilize it in a healthy way, in a positive way, in a wholesome way, that energy actually will turn into something very negative. Which is why man is the most miserable creature of all, as he said earlier. 
You ever meet animals that are depressed? Only men are depressed. Men. You ever met an animal that's addicted? Only men suffer from addictions. Mankind. Why is man the most miserable of all of God's creatures? Because we have such great potential. And there's such a huge gap between our potential and our actual. So the soul is miserable. The soul is in pain. The soul is in anguish. You can't go through life and have this powerful energy inside of you. And if you don't utilize it, it actually becomes corrosive. It actually actually becomes a negative force in your life. It's like you have a a hot potato in your hand. You have a nuclear energy inside of you. Either you're going to light up New York City with it or you're going to destroy New York City with it. Either you're going to touch the divine and express your divine spark, you create an image of God and live up to your potential, or or it's going to lead to disappointment, it's going to lead to sorrow, sadness. But there is no neutral. You don't have that choice. We have a choice to choose, but we don't have a choice not to choose. Not a choice is given to us. So if we don't choose, the choices will be made for us and they won't be pleasant choices. That All that energy will turn into self-destructive behavior. Addiction, self-destructive behavior will make ourselves miserable. In the most affluent generation in world history and the most miserable generation in world history. Affluence doesn't guarantee happiness and joy. Because joy comes from within. If you're connected with your soul, if you're actualizing the potential that God gave you, 100%, then you're joyful. But if God gives us all these energy, all these powerful energies, all these opportunities, and we barely scratch the surface, the soul is in misery, the soul is in anguish, the soul is suffering. And therefore, the moment that Adam, that man was created, there is a need to do teshuva. Because the act of creation created this huge gap between potential and action, which creates tension. And we created with that freedom of choice. Are we going to live up to our potential? Or are we just going to squander that? So the theme of our life is in the moment, from the get-go, the moment we hit the pave running, we, our, the theme of our life is Teshuvah. That's the theme of Rosh Hashanah, do Teshuvah. To reconnect the soul, return the soul back to its source, return the soul back to heaven when there is no dichotomy between, there is no split between potential and actual. How do you return the soul back to heaven? Through Torah, studying Torah, through mitzvot, through tzedakah, through acts of goodness and kindness, through prayer. So this fills your heart with joy when you have the opportunity to return the soul back to its original state, to reconnect the soul. To bridge the gap, this huge gap, this yawning gap between our potential and our actual. And you can help the soul actualize its potential by studying Torah and touching the divine and doing the mitzvot. And helping the soul achieve a level it can't even achieve while it remains in heaven. Which is why it's worthwhile for the soul to come into this world 
with all the trauma that's involved and all the existential angst that's involved and the constant chronic pain that the soul is in chronic pain. And it's all worthwhile for the tremendous level that the soul is able to achieve in this world. What's that level that the soul is able to achieve? That the soul is able to do a mitzvah. What is so special about a mitzvah? If you command your hand to move and your hand moves, it's no big deal. No one gets excited. Right? You're not going to give a plaque to your hand that your hand obeyed your soul. You wanted to move and your hand moved. You're not going to thank your hand. That's very nice of you. <laughs> you deserve a tremendous reward. It's natural. The hand, the hand is a part of the soul. A hand becomes inseparable of the soul. A hand is unselfconscious. A hand is a symptom of the soul. becomes one with the soul. So you expect this to be expected. It's no big deal. But when you command someone, when you have to command someone outside of you, someone who's not you, who's not a part of you, if you command someone to do something and they fulfill your wish, that gives you tremendous pleasure. I asked something and the person fulfilled my wish. That person is not me. That gives you tremendous pleasure. So too, when the soul is in heaven and the soul is connected with God, again, it's like the hand is connected to the soul and the hand listens. Of course, why? Of course, obviously. You don't, make note, you don't take note of it and it goes without saying. I mean, what's the big deal? There's nothing exciting. It's natural. It's normal. But when God has to command us to do the right thing, He has to command us to do the morally and ethically and spiritually correct thing. Because we don't feel like God's hand. We feel egotistical. We feel separate from God. And therefore God has to command us. And we have to choose to obey God. This gives God tremendous pleasure. So imagine the opportunity that the soul has by descending into this world, by taking the plunge and having to go through this traumatic experience called birth and life. But the gain and the advantage that the soul is able to accomplish, that we're able to give God this tremendous pleasure. This is... This is gives such relief to the soul. This touches the soul so deeply. This moves the soul so deeply. That we're able to elevate the soul to even a higher level. Not only are we returning the soul back to its previous level, we're elevating the soul to even a higher level than the soul was originally. So imagine the kindness that you're doing to the soul. So imagine the joy and the enthusiasm with which you're going to study Torah. So not only is it not a contradiction, how can I study Torah? How can I do the right thing? How can I do an act of kindness when I know who I am? I know I'm a spiritually miserable creature. I know my behavior. I know my attitudes. I know my spiritual state of being. How can I show my face in the house of prayer, in the house of study? How can I show my face to God and stand there and pray and study Torah and do a mitzvah? And the answer is, on the contrary, the Al-Tarebi is saying, the more you understand how miserable you are, the more, the greater the joy will be. Because remember, you are miserable, but your soul is holy. Your soul is a piece of the divine essence. Your soul is a piece of God, the royal prince. Imagine the kindness that you're doing to the soul. Every time, even if it's a moment a day, you're praying for one moment. It's so precious. 
You're studying Torah for a few moments a day. This is so precious. You're giving a penny to tzedakah. You're lifting your hands to do a favor, do an act of goodness and kindness. It's so precious. Cherish it. Relish it. Enjoy it. So this is what the Talmud says. All your life should be teshuvah. This is a way of life. It's not just I do teshuvah because I messed up. and No, it's on the contrary. It's the teshuvah that motivates everything that you're doing. Because you want to help the soul return back to its source. That's the whole theme of life. The whole purpose of the soul descending into this world. As, as King Solomon says, That the soul, the spirit, should return back to its original source. To its source in heaven. The way the soul was in heaven. When the soul was consciously connected with God. And obviously connected with God. And the only way to accomplish that. And the only way to achieve it. In this life. In this world. Is through Torah and mitzvah and prayer. If the word teshuvah is understood only in the sense of repentance for sin, why the need for further repentance once one has already repented? However, teshuvah is explained here. Returning the soul to its source is something in which one may well engage throughout his life whenever he studies Torah or performs a mitzvah. Surely there is no joy as great as that of being released from exile and captivity. It is comparable to the joy of a prince who was taken captive and was subjected to the hard labor of turning the millstone in prison while covered with filth, and who then goes free to the house of his father the king. Such a prince, descended from the supreme king, is the soul, and by means of the Torah and the mitzvot, it is redeemed from the captivity and degradation imposed on it by the body. True, the body remains abominable and loathsome, and as the Zohar says, it is called a serpent's skin. Since the essential character of the animal soul has not been transformed to good, so that it might be absorbed into the realm of holiness. For as explained above, the Benoni may indeed elevate the garments of the animal soul, the thought, speech, and action through which it expresses itself by performing the mitzvot by means of his thought, speech, and action. But the essential character of the animal soul, its intellectual and emotional faculties, remains subject to the realm of Klipat Noga. How, then, can one be expected to rejoice? knowing that his body and animal soul are still in such an undesirable state. This is a fundamental question. If you know that no matter how much Torah you study, no matter how many mitzvot you perform, your thoughts and your speech and your action could be filled with holiness, and yet it doesn't even make a dent in your soul, all the um, Torah and the mitzvot, all that behavior and all... That action doesn't even make a dent in your soul. The essence of your soul still remains egotistical. And we don't even have the power to affect that and to change it. So, that could lead to a very, very depressing thought. Like, what am I accomplishing? What am I achieving? How can I get excited about studying Torah and doing mitzvah? So he says, nevertheless, yet. Yet, let his divine soul be more precious to him than his loathsome body so that he rejoices in the soul's joy at its liberation through the observance of the Torah and the mitzvot, from the exile of the body, without letting the sadness on account of the lowly state of his body interfere with or disturb the joy of the soul. 
So even though we cannot change the core and essence of our egos, but nevertheless, we should rejoice in the joy of the soul. The fact that we're giving the soul reprieve, that we're doing something that's so therapeutic for the soul, that's so rejoiceful for the soul, so we should rejoice in the, in the joy of the soul, that we have this opportunity. We can do this act of kindness. We can return the soul back to its source, back to its natural state of being, and help the soul and relieve the soul. And there's no greater act of kindness. So that, that should give us joy, and real joy, and genuine joy. And now he's going to continue and explain that this is the idea, this is what we mean when we talk of the exodus from Egypt in a spiritual sense. You know, we remind ourselves of the exodus from Egypt each and every day of our lives. And twice, once in the morning, once in the evening, every day of our lives. Why does the exodus of Egypt play such a significant role in a Jew's life? And we constantly mention in the Torah, Remember the exodus from Egypt. We keep Shabbos. Shabbos reminds us of the exodus from Egypt. So much of what we do is to remind us of the exodus from Egypt. Why is the exodus from Egypt such a, such a constant theme in our life, such a basic theme in our life? Because what does it mean on a personal level, on a spiritual level? What it means, what does Egypt represent? And that's, this also explains, the commentaries ask, it says in the opening of the Ten Commandments, I am God, the God, who took you out of Egypt. The question is, it should have said, I am God, your God, who created heaven and earth. Which is a greater miracle? As we learned, which is a greater miracle? The splitting of the sea? The greatest miracle in the Torah? Or the cup of water? The splitting of the sea pales in comparison, is insignificant in comparison to the miracle of existence. The fact that there's a cup of water is a much, much more astonishing miracle. So why doesn't the Torah say, I am God, who created heaven and earth? Why does it say, I am God, who took you out of Egypt? And one of the explanations is, because what does Egypt represent? Egypt represents, comes from the Hebrew word, mitzarim ugvulim, limitation, constriction, confinement. The body constricts the soul. The ego world constricts, the material world constricts the spirit. So, the exile refers to this existential exile, this existential angst that the, that the soul suffers. Just by being born, by living, the soul is in tremendous pain. Most of us don't feel the suffering. The great tzaddikim were very troubled by this existential angst. It bothered them, it troubled them. They couldn't sleep at night. We managed somehow. <laughs> doesn't rob us too much of our sleep, right? We don't suffer from insomnia. <coughs> the Rebbe could hardly sleep. If he slept two hours, he was lucky at night. He was lucky. Couldn't sleep. The world is in exile. God is in exile. The Jewish people are in exile. The whole universe is in exile. This existential angst disturbed him so greatly that he couldn't sleep and didn't let any of us sleep. He tried not to let us sleep. But it doesn't disturb us. But the soul is disturbed. Whether we feel it or not, whether we're numb to it or not, it doesn't change the reality. The fact is the soul suffers terribly. The soul suffers from this existential Existence, being, is, is a traumatic experience for the soul. Even if we don't sin, even if we don't do anything. And every moment of that's why the baby cries. When the baby enters in the world, the baby cries. The soul is an anguish. It's a roller coaster. 
It's from the peak to the abyss. What a leap, what, what a fall, what a plunge. And why? And for what? Why did the soul come into this world? It's pure anguish, it's suffering. And we have to justify this journey, we have to justify this suffering. Every moment that goes by and we do nothing about it, the soul is suffering for no reason. And that's the worst type of suffering. If you're suffering, but there's a reason, you're accomplishing something. So we have to justify the suffering. And the only thing that can justify this suffering, this existential angst, is when you study Torah and you do a mitzvah and you do an act of goodness and kindness to help another person. This is the only thing that can justify this journey, this, tra- this trauma. So even a person who's so cruel and insensitive, how could you not have Rachmanus? When your neshama, your soul, your, your, that's your essence, is crying out. Why are you numbed out? You're numbed out because you're in so, such pain. Why do we have a generation that is so numbed out? Because it's, we're in such pain, it's so unbearable, the pain is so indescribable, that the only way to soothe our pain is, is to block our ears, to distract ourselves 24-7, constant distraction, or live such a noisy life that you don't hear your soul, your soul is crying. But we get so busy and so distracted and constant 24-7 entertainment, and so loud that maybe in the, in the, we try to shout out or try not to hear, we just numb out because the pain is simply indescribable. And how do people deal with the pain? They medicate themselves through addictions. It's a way to soothe their pain. The most affluent generation in history and the most addicted generation in history. But of course that doesn't soothe anything and doesn't solve anything and doesn't help anything or anyone. So the pain is there. And if we don't feel it, it's just a sign of how deep the pain is. It's so deeply felt that we can't even feel it. It's a paradox. But the pain is so deeply felt, it's so excruciating, that we just numb out. When there's so little spirituality, there's such a thirst for spirituality, there's such a hunger for something divine, for something godly, the soul is parched. The soul has been cut off for two, three generations. The soul is searching for something divine, something godly. The soul is plotting. The soul is begging, pleading, crying. Imagine the kindness that you can do for your neshama if you take a, a, a book in Torah and you study Torah for a few minutes. The soul is relieved. Maybe it's the first bit of Torah that's been studied in decades. Imagine the relief of the soul. How soothing it is for the soul. The soul has been in the concentration camp for decades. And you took it out kindly and mercifully. You took it out. You gave it a reprieve for a few hours, a few moments. You could study Torah. You could do a mitzvah. You can pray and talk to God and connect with God. Imagine the joy is indescribable. So this is the meaning of the exodus from Egypt on a spiritual and a personal level which we remind ourselves each and every day and twice a day, in the morning and at night. Because it's an ongoing thing. We constantly have to leave Egypt. Because every moment we have to justify this, this trauma, this existential angst. And the only way to justify it is through Torah and mitzvot. And that's why the Ten Commandments starts out. I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. And that's why I'm giving you the mitzvot. 
The purpose of the mitzvah is this is how you get out of Egypt. You want to get out of your inner Egypt. Your inner angst. Through Torah mitzvah. When you study Torah, you do mitzvah, you're doing teshuvah, you're reconnecting the souls, returning back to its home, returning back to the royal palace. The soul, soul feels at home. The soul feels wonderful. And this is the path. This is the only path. So this is the motivation, this is the theme behind the Ten Commandments and all of the 613. This is the tshuva that leads to good deeds. This form of divine service, in which the divine soul breaks free of its exile within the body, while the body and animal soul remain in their lowly state, is analogous to the exodus from Egypt, of which it is written that the people escaped. The Jews told Pharaoh that they would leave Egypt for only three days, but upon being released from his land, they escaped. At first glance, it seems strange. Why should it have been so, in a manner of flight? Had they demanded of Pharaoh that he set them free forever, would he not have been forced to do so, having been stricken by the plagues? So the question is, they subdued Egypt. After the 10th plague, Egypt was totally subdued, crushed, defeated, unconditional surrender. Pharaoh came running in his pajamas in the middle of the night and saying, please, leave, do whatever you want, just, just leave me alone, we can't handle it, we can't take it. He, his stubbornness was broken and he finally, unconditional surrender. So the question is, why, why did the Jews run? Because they ran out of Egypt. Who were they running from? They could have done whatever they wanted. It was like, it was like the Allies defeated the Nazis. We were in charge. We could have taken over Egypt. We could have told the Egyptians to leave. We could have kicked the Egyptians out. Why did we leave? And even if we left, why did we run? Why did Moshe make a whole ruse? Well, we're going for three days. He never said only three days. He never lied. Going three days. (laughs) Of course, three days. Once after three days. He never said we're going back. But why did, he, why did the whole thing, like, like we're breaking out of Egypt, we're running out of Egypt, we're smuggling our way out of Egypt, we're escaping Egypt. Why? It's unconditional surrender. He could have said, listen, these are our terms. Okay? You know, God is fighting us, fighting for us. So we have God on our side. Unconditional surrender, whatever you want. These are our terms. We're leaving for good. Now, why did the Jews have to leave in a... Where were they running from? And the answer is, as Ben-Gurion once said, you can take the Jew out of exile, but you can't take the exile out of the Jew. Externally, you can change. But to have, make an internal change, that's a lot more difficult. You know, the person comes back all excited. He tells his wife that they... that they, there is a town on the Ukrainian-Polish border which every 10, 20 years changed countries. You know, it was part of Ukraine, part of Poland, part of Russia. So he comes home all excited. He says that our town now is no longer part of Russia. Now it's become part of Ukraine. She says, oh, wonderful. We'll never have to suffer for another Russian winter again. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, you can't change things externally, you know, uh, changing seats on the Titanic. Um, Change has to come internally. The Jewish people had to run out of Egypt because God can take the Jew out of Egypt. But he couldn't take Egypt out of the Jew. 
the Jew was afraid of his inner Egypt. It's like a recovering alcoholic. You don't take a recovering alcoholic to a bar. Can't handle it. The Jew couldn't handle Egypt. Egypt was, was too powerful, had a powerful grip on the Jew. The Jew didn't have the strength to deal with Egypt. God had to yank them out of Egypt, remove them from that environment, and put them in a desert. You know, detox. <laughs> put them in a desert. Remove them from that environment. So yes, why did they have to run? Not because of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were crushed. They were defeated. They, 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 unconditional surrender. They could have done whatever they wanted. The Jew had to run from himself. He couldn't deal with the Egypt. And that's why the miracle of Pesach, that we eat the matzah, the symbol of Pesach, we eat the matzah because since they rushed out of Egypt, it retarded the growth of, it didn't allow the dough to rise. So just like the dough didn't rise because of God's revelation. It retarded the growth to rise. But the moment you let the dough rise, the dough would rise in a moment. Like it says, if a person, if you let the dough, st- if you knead the dough and just you let it alone, after 18 minutes, the dough will rise. What if you're kneading it the whole time? Then you can, you can knead it all day. It won't rise. You don't allow it. You suppress. You don't allow it to rise. The moment you let go, it will rise. So too, it was God's revelation that retarded Egypt. It retarded the negativity of Egypt. It didn't allow the dough, the ego, to rise. What happens the moment God's revelation ceases and stops? It comes roaring back. Because all God did was God like anesthetized put to sleep, crushed and destroyed, and anesthetized, gave an injection into the negative, negativity of Egypt. So when the negativity, the ego, was put to sleep, suddenly the soul came roaring to life. The soul is there. So the Egyptian was crushed. The Egyptians were crushed. Egypt was crushed. And the Jew was redeemed. Simultaneously. At that moment at midnight, when God crushed the firstborn of the Egyptians, at that very moment, the Jewish people, God's firstborn, were redeemed. Simultaneously. Why? Because the Jew is compared to, and that's the difference in Judaism and religion, the Jew is compared to a flintstone. While religion is compared to a coal. Coal is on fire. But what happens when you put the coal underwater? It's the end of that. The end of that fire. What happens if you put a flintstone underwater? The flintstone could be there for thousands of years, underwater, submerged. While it's underwater, there's no fire, there's no spark. But at any time, when you remove the flintstone and dry the stone and strike it, you'll always get a spark. Why? Because the spark is part of the stone. It's part of the essence of the stone. It's not external to the stone. The coal and the flame is external to the coal. So you can, you can damp out the fire. You can extinguish the flame. But the, the flintstone is indestructible. The spark is there because it's part of their essence. So too, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, as we studied earlier in chapter 18, inherited this indestructible, this soul, this soul connection, this indestructible connection with God. So although externally, the Jew at that time assimilated, and you couldn't tell the difference between the Jew and the Egyptians, these were idolaters, and these were idolaters on a conscious level externally, and the Jew reached the 49 levels of impurity. But the moment God crushed Egypt, crushed the shell, the ego, the arrogance, retarded the growth 
of the chametz of the dough. And at that moment, Egypt was crushed. But the Jew, that Flintstone, that spark came roaring to life. Suddenly that love and that connection and that feeling that they have towards the divine, towards godliness, came roaring to life and emerged. And that split second. And therefore, since the Jew was freed spiritually, as a consequence, they were also freed materially. Because the material and the spiritual are one and the same. The material is a reflection of the spiritual. Whatever happens in the spiritual translates into the material. So the Jew was in servitude in Egypt because they were spiritually in servitude. Because they lost touch with their faith and they lost touch with their spirituality and they lost touch with their soul. So their soul was in exile. That divine spark was in exile. That divine spark was in exile, couldn't express itself, was in anguish, was in pain. That resulted in physical exile, in physical suffering. But the moment that God crushed Egypt and crushed the ego and retarded the growth of that arrogance and that negativity, at that moment, that inner spark just emerged in all its brilliance. And therefore, at that moment, the Jew was also physically and materially also freed from Egypt and released from Egypt. But since this did not come from the Jew, this came from God. The Jews were like little children. That's why the whole emphasis of the Passover Seder, which is coming up, is the child. Because the child, everything is given to the child. The child doesn't do anything on his own. We were not ready. We were not worthy. It all came from God. It all came from above. And therefore, we could not deal with the negativity. We could not deal with the ego. That's why... On Passover, you have to get rid of even a crumb, every drop of chametz, every crumb, every, even the slightest crumb, because we can't handle it. A child, as a child, you have to start out with a clean slate, purity, wholesomeness. You can't deal with negativity. You're too fragile. You're too sensitive. You have to start to clean. And what happens the moment that the revelation ceased? And the dough rises. The ego comes roaring back to life, as if nothing happened, as if nothing changed. <laughs> We're back to square one. The sin of the golden calf. Back to square one, as if nothing happened. Because it didn't come from within us. And that's why the Jew had to rush out of Egypt. Not because of Egypt. Egypt, Egypt, was, Egypt was crushed. They could have done anything. But the Jew had to run away from himself, the Egypt within the Jew. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't deal with it. didn't have the strength to deal with it. And therefore they had to run out, rush out. Okay, continue the explanation. The explanation, the Alter Rebbe goes on to say, lies in the spiritual aspect of the Exodus. And this was reflected in its physical counterpart, just as every event in Jewish history reflects a parallel spiritual process. The corporeal enslavement of the Jewish people in Egypt reflected the enslavement of their souls by the kalipa of Egyptian impurity. Their exodus from Egypt, likewise, represented a spiritual liberation from this kalipa. Since the spiritual exodus was an act of escape, i.e. their soul broke away and escaped, from the impurity of Egypt, while the body and animal soul were still in exile within the klipa, 
Therefore, the physical exodus likewise assumed the manner of an escape. In the Alter Rebbe's words, but escape was necessary because the evil in the animal souls of Israel was still strong in the left part of the heart, the seat of the animal soul. For their impurity, the impurity of Klippa, did not cease until the giving of the Torah. Yet their aim and desire was that their divine soul leave the exile of the Sitra Achra, the impurity of Egypt, and that it cleave to God. So it is written that there is a divine service which consists of the divine soul's escape from the impurity of the body and animal soul. God is my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. He is my high tower and my refuge, and he is my escape. And the Exodus from Egypt exemplified this idea of escape. The first two are verses in Jeremiah and Samuel. And the third one is from the prayer we say in the morning, Adoy Neilam, Uman So he brings three different expressions. One has like a triple expression, Uzi, Umu Uzi, Umanusi. God is my strength, my fortress, my refuge. And then um, the second verse is Miskabi Omenusi, my, um, my high tower and my refuge, two expressions. And then the third one from the prayer of Adon Olam is one expression, Umanusli is my escape. It's referring to thought, speech, and action. That through thought, speech, and action, this is our escape. This is how we escape Egypt. This is our refuge. When our thoughts engage in the thoughts of Torah, in the thoughts of prayer, when our speech engages in the study of Torah, in the study of in praying, and our actions engage in the mitzvot and the actions, this is our escape, this is our ticket out of exile. This is our exodus, personal exodus. Hence it is written of the redemption which will take place in the time to come when God will remove the spirit of impurity from the earth and there will therefore be no evil necessitating spiritual escape. You will not go out in haste, nor go in flight, for God will go before you. So Mashiach will come, will be the exact opposite of the Exodus from Egypt. The Exodus from Egypt, they crushed Egypt, and they had to escape and run away like um, fugitives. They ran out of Egypt like fugitives, escaping. Even though they could, I mean, even though they basically conquered and they could have done whatever they wanted. But Mashiach will come, however, when Hashem will not crush the world. He'll remove the spirit of impurity from the world. So it says the Jewish people won't leave the exile like fugitives. They'll go calmly. Because that's the difference between the ultimate redemption and the exodus from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt was not an ultimate redemption. Because it crushed the world, it redeemed the Jew, but it crushed the world. And therefore, the moment the world came roaring back to its good old natural self, it acted once again as a counterbalance, as a negative force, negative attraction for the Jew. And that's why the Jew reverted back into exile. Although the Jew was redeemed and changed forever by the Exodus, will never be the same since we left Egypt. The Exodus from Egypt left an imprint on every Jewish soul forever and ever, that a Jew will always remain free, no matter what happens to us externally. Externally, we may be in a concentration camp, God forbid, or in a ghetto, but no one could rob us of our inner freedom, inner dignity and inner freedom, no matter what happens to us. So that, the Exodus from Egypt left an imprint for us, an eternal imprint forever and ever. 
But nevertheless, because the world was merely crushed, but then the world was not transformed or refined or elevated, so the world, again, draws back in to its, its hold and to its grip. And once again, we became exiled within us from our own soul, and therefore, as a result, we went back into exile. But our Mashiach will come, however. Mashiach will affect the entire world. All six billion people will be transformed, will become righteous Gentiles, will serve God, acknowledge God, and become moral, ethical, and spiritual human beings, will become miniature Noahs. You can have six billion miniature Noahs. Imagine a world where you have six billion miniature Noahs running around. Right? What a wonderful world. Not one Noah. Six billion miniature Noahs running around. What a beautiful world that world will be. That's the world of Mashiach. This is a world where there's no need to run, to hide, to escape. You don't act like, like a fugitive because there's no, longer any, there's no longer any threat. The negativity has been transformed. The enemy has been transformed and turned into, into a friend. The negativity has been transformed and turned, turned, turned into something positive. So there's no, there's no corner of resistance. There's no pocket of resistance. There's no point in the world that's opposing to the Jewish message or opposing to God or opposed to godliness. There's no longer any arrogance, there's no longer any any um, excesses of ego. The, the spirit of impurity will, will be removed. The world will become a genuine place, a good place, a wholesome place, a humble place, a kind place, a good place. And this will be this will change the world for good forever. So there's no longer any need to run and to escape because even from within you won't have to retard the growth of the ego, of the chametz. The ego itself will be transformed. The whole world will be transformed. So you don't have to run, you don't have to hide, you don't have to escape, no fugitives. It's just broad daylight. Slowly and calmly and confidently march into, because this will be the ultimate transformation. There will be a moment. The moment of redemption, the moment of Mashiach that we're all hoping for and yearning for, when there will be a transformation, a complete transformation, a transition, a transformation. When this world will become, instead of being a dark, spiritually dark place, this world will become the most enlightened world of all. Spiritually wholesome place. Beautiful place. A garden of Eden. A delightful place. God says, I find this place, this world delightful. Imagine. Hard to imagine, but imagine. This world that we know it, human beings, not flying to heaven, it's not some otherworldly reality. This world, you and I, human beings, down to earth, human beings, flesh and blood. This world will become, turn into a garden of Eden where God says, This is my garden, this is my delight, my pleasure. I gain so much pleasure. Six billion miniature Noahs and 14 million proud Jews. Imagine. The exodus from Egypt, however, took place in a manner of flight, for the evil was still strong in the people's animal soul. Similarly, whenever one disregards the lowliness of his body and animal soul and engages in the Torah and the mitzvot in order to free the divine soul from its corporeal exile, he effects the spiritual equivalent of the exodus from Egypt. One may lend this teshuva, the restoration of his soul to its source, additional strength from the depths of his heart, and likewise add a greater measure of light and joy to the joy of his soul brought on by the teshuva. By comforting his heart from its distress and sorrow, 
through reflecting, literally speaking to his heart with knowledge and understanding as follows. Certainly it is true, as said above, that I am utterly remote from God, etc., but it was not I who created myself in a manner that permits the divine soul to be exiled within the impurity of the body and animal soul. It was God who created me thus. Why then has God done such a thing to cause the divine soul, a part of his light, which fills and encompasses all worlds, and before which all is as naught, to descend into the body and be clothed in a serpent's skin and a fetid drop? Even besides the... um the descent that we that we affect through our behavior or misbehavior, misconduct just the fact of existence, the fact of birth, why would Hashem send His divine spark, His divine essence, piece of His divine self and journey into this world and such a descent because to God God fills all the worlds animates all the worlds God encompasses all the worlds. And to God, all of the world, all of existence, is absolutely not. It's like nothing. Completely insignificant. As if it doesn't exist. Like we learned earlier, it's like the words are in a, in a wordless state. That's their natural state of being, as if, as if it doesn't exist, as if they don't exist. Completely, absolutely unified within the source, as if, it, as if they don't exist. So the worlds are nothing. It's not like it's something. When you say that God fills the world, even when you say that God encompasses the world, that means there's some connection, there's some relationship. The world has some significance. God fills it, God encompasses it, He transcends the world. Here we're saying God doesn't even transcend the world. The world is so insignificant that it's as if, it's as if it doesn't even exist. It means nothing. So why would God take a piece of Himself and to himself, the whole world is nothing. And God would constrict his soul into such a narrow confinement, into such a narrow world, such a narrow bridge, such a narrow world, such a coarse, materialistic, limited world. Why would God do this? To himself. Why would he do it? Good question. Why? So, but, but God did it. I didn't do this. Let's not take all the credit. Let's not take all the blame. God did this to us. He created us this way. He put us in this impossible situation. So why did God do it? And the answer is, continue. Surely this descent must be for the sake of a subsequent ascent. That is, to elevate to God the entire animating animal soul which derives from klipat noga and also its garments of thought, speech, and action by means of clothing them in the action, speech, and thought of the Torah. For by performing the mitzvot and by speaking and thinking words of Torah, the animal soul and its garments are elevated toward godliness. The subject of this ascent will be discussed further on at length. It will be shown how this is the purpose for which the world was created. If this be so, there is one thing for me to do, and this shall be my sole aim throughout my life, to immerse therein, in the thought, speech, and action of the Torah and the mitzvot, the life of my spirit and soul, as it is written, to you, God, I raise my soul. So he's saying that there's two reasons why 
God did this. One is because the soul accomplishes, is elevated through this experience. The soul achieves a much greater union with God, a much greater connection to God than the soul, before the soul descended, was separated from God, so to speak, and journeyed and descended into this dark materialistic world. Because it's only by doing the mitzvah, as I said earlier, that not only do you return back to your previous state, you don't destroy a building, you don't tear down a building just to re- rebuild this exact same building. Why would you go through that whole trauma of, of construction? Of tearing down a building just to re- rebuild the exact same building. If you're ready, re-tearing a building is because you're building something bigger and better. So it's not just to return the soul back to heaven to its previous level. And what's the point? Is that the greatest you can accomplish? To go back to heaven where you are? So why did you leave in the first place? You go back to heaven at a much higher level. The soul, after the, you live life, and then you return back to heaven, the soul is returned to heaven. The soul is returned on a much higher level. It achieves an elevation that it couldn't accomplish, it couldn't achieve without this descent. It's only in this world that we have the opportunity to do a mitzvah, to give God this pleasure, this infinite pleasure that God commands us, even though we feel separate and apart, and yet we, we obey and we connect with God. This gives God tremendous, tremendous pleasure. So... The, the opportunity that we have in this world, which we don't have in heaven. In heaven, the soul is like a, a hand to God. It's, just, it's automatically connected. It has no choice. It's no big deal. It's, there's nothing exciting about it. There's nothing new. There's nothing novel. There's nothing exciting. But in this world, there's something very novel and very new and very exciting about the idea that we, we feel we're separate, although we feel we're separate, and God has to command us, and yet we obey and we connect. And we deliberately and consciously choose to connect. This gives God such infinite pleasure, so the soul is elevated to a much higher level than before the soul descended into this world. That's one answer. And another explanation is, because by coming into this world, we fulfill God's purpose of creation. The purpose of creation was, as we're going to learn later, explain, he's going to explain later, the whole purpose of creation was, that God wanted us to, to merge heaven and earth, to bring godliness into the physical world. Whatever reason, God wanted to do the impossible. To take heaven, heaven of heavens, the most sublime, the most spiritual, the most godly, the infinite, and to merge it. To make it absolutely one, to bring all of that into the material, physical. Which is not even a vessel, a vehicle for for spirituality and God. Coarse, crass, materialistic world. The antithesis of spirituality and God. How could you merge heaven of heaven with earth of earth? Material of material. Action of action of action. Only God can reconcile opposites. Only God can contain paradoxes. This is what God wanted. This is what the divine plan was, the divine mission. This whole trauma of life and this whole experience, whole human experience, is because we are fulfilling God's ultimate purpose and ultimate plan, which is God wanted to feel at home in this world. He wanted to merge heaven and earth. He wanted to accomplish the impossible. This is a mission worthy of of, Only God can think of such a mission because it makes no sense. (laughs) <laughs> the rhyme is what we have no understanding of. 
but we know this is what God wanted. And he gave us the tools and he gave us the ability to accomplish it. How do we accomplish it? When you study Torah, when you use your ego and you use your body, you take money, the ultimate ego symbol, the antithesis of godliness, and you give tzedakah, you do an act of goodness and kindness. When you study Torah by moving your lips, taking all the energy that you acquired through eating and drinking and sleeping and, and doing business, and you take all of that and you transform it and you do a mitzvah with it. This is how you merge heaven and earth. This is how you bring God into this world. This is how you, you sew the two together and you bring the two together. And God says, I feel at home in this world. So we have the tools and the ability to accomplish this grand plan that God had for creation, for existence. We are in the front line. So don't feel sad. Don't feel sorrowful. You are in the front line. You are accomplishing the divine mission, the ultimate purpose for all of existence, for creation, for angels, for heaven, for heaven of heavens. All of this is for us in this world. When you engage your animal soul, your ego, and you engage your body, and you physically do the mitzvah, the deed, the action, and you fill your life, your thought, your speech, your action, you fill your life with Torah and mitzvah, you are fulfilling the ultimate divine plan, the whole purpose why God desired creation in the first place, and the purpose of existence imagine how joyful you should feel you, you are the thank God we had the merit to implement this whole divine impossible scheme but we're not implementing it we have been implementing it 3800 years all the Torah all the mitzvah all the tzedakah, all the tears, all the sacrifice, the blood, all the heartfelt prayers, all the kindness, all that selflessness, all that love, all the sweat and toil, dedication, devotion. Of course, we've been planting seeds for 3,800 years, and now the seeds are beginning to sprout. And anyone who opens his eyes can see that the seeds are beginning to sprout. In our generation, we witnessed the collapse. In the previous generation, they witnessed the collapse of fascism. Our generation has witnessed the collapse of communism. We're hurtling through the information age, which has transformed the world, and we haven't seen anything yet. It's just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We are living in very privileged times because the seeds are finally beginning to take root. We live in a different world. The world is not the same today than it was even 50 years ago. It's a different world. It's not a world that's shoving Jews into ovens. This is a world that actually is begging the Jew to stand up and speak up. Speak like a Jew. Behave like a Jew. Teach. So how do you account for Islamists? You know, Mashiach hasn't come yet. The redemption hasn't materialized yet. We are living like in a twilight zone. On one hand, we have these brilliant flashes of light, phenomenon, that a phenomenon. We, have, we never had this seven Noahide, Noahide movement phenomenon. Where in every city in the world, you have groups of non-Jews who are studying with their rabbis, studying Torah, and want to connect. On the other hand, we also have negative phenomena that we've never seen before. But this is, this is the clash. This is the, the twilight zone that we're living in because we are in a transitional generation. 
we are, as the Rebbe would always remind us, we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like us and there never will be another generation in history like us because we are the last generation of the old order and we will be the first generation of the new order. We are going to witness and see this transformation that the prophets and the Torah has written about and promised us when this world will turn into a garden of Eden, a place where, where God's purpose, when God's purpose of creation will finally be fulfilled when God will say, this is my home. I feel at home in this world. I feel at home in everyone's home. I feel at home in this world. I feel at home when people will open their hearts and minds and let God into their lives. And this world will become a moral, ethical, and spiritual and godly place, a good place. This is good. This is, and it's imminent. If you open your eyes, you can see it. It's imminent. We are in the threshold. So we are in the twilight zone. It's the last moment, and therefore there's a lot of tumult and confusion and on the other hand even the negativity is also actually positive and encouraging because it's becoming obvious that without a connection without a connection to God without a connection to something greater there's nothing there's no rhyme there's no reason there's no beauty you see the how lost how lost the Israeli government is. You see how completely lost. Totally lost their compass. Because without a connection, without a connection to God and to His Torah and to the teachings and the path of life, you see that there's nothing. There's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no beauty, there's nothing. It's just meaningless. So the world has become so refined, the world has become so allergic to lies, that the world speaks, the world states on its own, the world states that unless a person is connected, unless a community is connected with the truth of Hashem, there's nothing. There's nothing there. It's not like God is icing on the cake. You could be a mensch. But if you have God, it's, it's icing on the cake. No. Without God, there's nothing. There's no cake. There's no, no, cake. <laughs> there's no icing. There's no cake. There's, all you see is absurdity. You see... I mean, it's, there's no need to... It's too painful to discuss what, what we see. There's never been in the history of the world a country that refuses to defend its own citizen. Never. In the annals of human history, there's never been a, a country in the nation on earth that's so paralyzed, that's so paranoid. It, it's, it's, it's a psychosis. It's like completely psychotic. It's like they've completely lost it. They're completely paralyzed. They can't even do the most basic, elementary human thing that you have to do to defend your own babies. Where is that a sign of the coming of... But it, it just shows that without a connection to Hashem, yeah. there's nothing. It's not like, well, it's nice if you have a connection to God, but if you don't have a connection to God, you still have military strategy, you have strategic strategy, you have intellect, you have a philosophy, you have a, a point. There's no point. There's no strategy. It's pure mindlessness. Surrender, compromise, give up. 
no dignity, no self-respect. You're lacking in the very basic fundamental aspect of self-defense. Which human being on earth couldn't relate and couldn't, couldn't, couldn't relate to the fact that Israel has a right to defend itself? And we're so paranoid and so paralyzed, we're so terrified, what's the world going to think and how is the New York Times going to react and what's the State Department going to say? So we sit for four years and allow 7,000 missiles to hit our children and do nothing. I mean, this, this is psychotic. This is psychosis. This is, this is so abnormal. Because if there's no connection to God, there's nothing. There's no intellect, there's no, not only there's no icing on the cake, there's no cake. There's, no, there's nobody home. So in a way, the world has become so refined. The world has become so genuine and so truthful. The world tells you that Hashem is everything. There's nothing other than Hashem. If you have Hashem in your life, you'll have beauty, you'll have seichel, you'll have rhyme, you'll have reason, you'll have... Without Hashem, all you have is mindlessness and worse. And it's so obvious today. Look at the leadership. Would be criminals, almost indicted, should be indicted, <laughs> will be indicted. I mean, this is the caliber, this is the level that we're talking about today. This is the world. Without Hashem, this is this is what the, this is what the, this is what you have. So, in a way, the world is very refined. Even the negativity is really it's it's it's, it's ref, comes from a refinement. It shows that. You can't, well, no, it's so clear. You have such clarity. If a person wants anything in life, you want to build a life, a life you can trust, a life you can believe in, a life that's rooted, that's foundation, has a foundation. We had 3,800 years and we haven't changed because this is real. The Jewish people is eternal. The Torah is eternal. God is eternal. The Israel is eternal. The Holy Land of Israel is in its entirety as a term. This is the truth. This is the only truth. This is the truth you can rely on. And this is the truth that will always, always be there for you. While the 20th century is the burial ground of all the false isms that were meant to be substitutes for the one ism, Judaism, for the Torah, for the truth, Emmas. So today, that, that truth has become so obvious Anyone who has a little soul, a little sensitivity, and sees what's going on, the dismal reality. I mean, it's so obvious that without Hashem, there's nothing. So in a way, that's also part of the healing process. It has to be exposed. The lie has to be exposed. It's very painful, but the lie has been exposed. And people are realizing So that's also part of the healing process. First you have to bury the lie in order to allow the truth to sprout. And Israel is very quickly approaching a point where they can't continue this way. You can't, you can't the bombs are getting, the, the rockets and the missiles are getting more sophisticated every moment. And they're just paralyzed. They just can't move. They, they paralyze themselves with this fear, with this fear that's groundless. What are people going to say? And how is the press going to react? Is that a consideration when it comes to defending life? 
cares what people think? When it comes to life, the only thing that matters is the protection of life. What should Israel do? I don't know. I'm not the expert. But you go to the military. When a person is ill, you go to the doctor. And you don't make political considerations. Well, doctor, you think I should operate, but how is this going to look in the street? How, what are people going to think? How is this going to look in the press? That's, there's only one consideration. This person is ill, you go to the expert, whatever the expert says, whatever is going to cure them, that's the only thing that matters. When there's a military question, there's only one expert that's allowed to weigh in. Not a former military person who turned politician. His opinion is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. The only opinion that's valid is the military expert who's an expert on defending life. And no political considerations are allowed, absolutely. And the world would understand this. And if they don't understand this, we'll educate them. Because this is the most sacred principle of Judaism. We are a holy people because life is sacred to us. When did we lose that principle? What happened to Entebbe? What happened to 81? It's so dismal. It's so shockingly disappointing. But on the other hand, this is part of the healing process. Because the healthy parts are also emerging and are gaining strength. And this is a vanishing phenomenon. This psychosis will will disappear because this, this cannot last. And the healthy parts will emerge and will surface and will triumph. And then Mashiach himself will run the Holy Land of Israel. Okay, we just have another two, two minutes. Let's already finish the chapter. Yeah. <laughs> In practical terms, this means to bind my thought and speech with God's thought and speech, which are in fact the very laws which have been set out before us. For the laws of the Torah are God's thought and speech, and by studying them, one binds his own faculties of thought and speech with their divine counterparts. Similarly with action. I will bind my faculty of action with God's faculty of action through performing the commandments. For this reason, the Torah is described as that which restores the soul, i.e., it restores the soul to its source and root. Moreover, concerning this occupation in the Torah and the mitzvot, which brings joy to the soul by restoring it to its source and which banishes the sadness of its exile in the body and animal soul, it is written, God's commandments are just. They gladden the heart. When one considers that one's study of the Torah and observance of the mitzvot elevate not only his divine soul, but also his animal soul, his teshuva will gain in depth, and the joy of his soul will gain in intensity. For although the soul's escape from exile within the body and animal soul, spoken of earlier, would in itself be sufficient cause for great joy, yet this is a joy tempered by sadness over the lowly state in which one's body and animal soul remain. When one realizes, however, that Torah and the mitzvot elevate the body and animal soul as well, his joy will be untarnished. So he says that's why the two reasons why God created the world, two reasons for explain, one joy is the joy of the soul, that the soul, the returning the soul back to its source, the prince, the royal prince is going back to the palace, even for a few moments. 
So even though you are in a despicable and lowly spiritual state, for that reason, for that very reason, you're so excited for the soul that you have the opportunity to return and restore the soul back to its original state. But in addition to that, when you realize that the you, by engaging the animal soul, your body and your ego, by thinking words of Torah and by speaking words of Torah and doing acts of goodness and kindness, doing the mitzvot, you're actually fulfilling the divine plan of making this world a home for God, of merging heaven and earth. Therefore, you're not only, your, soul, your joy is not only the joy of the soul, but also the joy of the body, of your ego. Because the fact that you are in such a lowly state, that is the whole purpose. The whole purpose of creation was God wanted the lowest part of creation to be united with the heaven of heavens, with the highest. So when you take your, your lowly state, your animal soul, which is in such a low, lowly state, and you study Torah by using your animal soul, using your body, you are fulfilling the ultimate purpose of creation. Not only by engaging your soul and your spirit and redeeming and freeing your soul and doing teshuva, but also by, by uh, engaging your animal soul and utilizing your strength and your physical and your material to serve God. So you're fulfilling the ultimate purpose. So this gives you an unbelievable joy when you realize you are fulfilling the whole purpose of creation. So don't feel sad, don't feel sorrowful. On the contrary, simch.